your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host. James Fox is alongside us. He's the senior editor at Future Sox and Sox Machine. We're part of the Blue Wire Network. That's why you're able to listen to this podcast currently. Wherever you get your podcast, be sure to subscribe and like and leave us a comment. It really does help us out if you want to engage with us on Twitter. We're at Future Sox. My name, again, Mike Rankin, at Rankin906. James is at JamesFox917. Today's guest, Jack McMullen. It's one that we've had before. We have him back for a reason. Jack McMullen is the AAA broadcaster for the Indianapolis Indians. The Indianapolis Indians are the AAA affiliate of the Pittsburgh Pirates. So we're going to get some perspective from Jack. It is a pleasure to welcome him back onto the podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at Jack underscore McMullen 11. Here's where I want to start with you today, Jack. Thanks so much for joining us again. You're winding down your season, the AAA season, into late September. How you feeling? Is the energy still there? I know football is around the corner and it's here, but you know there's still baseball left to be played at the AAA level. So, Mike, I don't know about your situation at home, but I know James has has a young kid. So you know that feeling when like you get past that initial feeling of fatigue, where you just become a little slap happy. I think uh, I think that's where we're at. So I think we're at the slap happy phase of of the minor league baseball season. But it's been good, man. And uh, the AAA schedule it, it's longer than it's been in quite some time. I think there's a legitimate reason for it. Um, AAA baseball should always kind of function as the understudy to the big leagues, right? I mean, if, if you got to make a move in September or just before the postseason, when you're in the postseason push, you should be going to get a guy from AAA. So it makes sense that AAA doesn't end on Labor Day when big league ball ends in, our, in early October, first couple of days of October. Jack is also a part of Just Baseball. You can follow Just Baseball on Twitter at JustBBMedia. They do baseball talk all the time and follow the content there. If you like what Jack has to say, explore their content and learn more about what he provides. So when you're talking about being slap happy in AAA, <laughs> right, we're in September now. How are the players feeling? How? What are some of the things that you're hearing from coaches and players as the season's starting to wind down? Yeah, I mean, there's so much shifting. Like, um, And I'm not talking literal shift. I know we'll get into that at some point. But th- there's so much shifting in rosters, right? We've got waiver claims. I mean, the Indians just added Zach Collins via a waiver claim after he was DFA'd by Toronto. So I know that's an old friend alert there. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think the players like they get this new life whenever they get back up. And, and there's so much, um, you know, back and forth between the AAA and the big club, especially after COVID. After that 60-game season, uh, last year we saw this spike in soft tissue injuries. I think we're still seeing some of that residual spike in soft tissue injuries. Um, so guys are on the mend often. There's a lot of roster turnover, and a lot of those guys are getting up, coming down, uh, so on and so forth. So I think those guys understand the business of baseball and they, under, they understand the business of being so close to Major League Baseball um, that their sights are, are still absolutely set on getting there, whether it 
would have been as a September call up or, uh, you know, say a guy goes down on September 15th or September 20th, uh, you know, they could be there for the home stretch. So these guys are handling it really, really well. Um, but I think this is, you know, a new frontier for them. This is deeper than they might have ever played baseball before if they didn't go to the fall league in years prior. I think that's a fascinating point that you bring up. And, and Jack, we're having you on the podcast today because you live through the rule changes and you saw them being implemented in the league across AAA. I'm curious your experience, how that was, what you thought about some of these changes. Now, I'd love to talk about the pitch clock. Of course, that yeah. is going to be all the rage being implemented next year. But I think the banning the shift is interesting. The pickoff rule is kind of unique that I'd like to get perspective from somebody who's lived through it uh, to explain it a little bit better. You know, we talked in the past to some experts and they, they said the, the bigger bases, it's good for players' health. Yes. And my, my question is, and let's start here, Jack, with the increased size of the bases, does that encourage players to try to snag another base, try to advance 90 feet a little bit more aggressively, try to steal more bases across the league? So th- the numbers indicate yes. Um, it's hard to find, you know, a direct correlation. And like when I talk to players about bigger bases, they're like, yeah, great. Okay. Um, you know, it it's not as hot button of a topic as the pitch clock or the pickoff rules. Um, I think that it could incentivize. We've seen a direct correlation uh, numerically from the numbers that Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball have put out between the bigger bases and stolen base attempts. But I also think those kind of work in step with the pickoff rules and the pitch clock. So I think that the other two are actually uh, more of a driving incentive to, you know, encourage players to steal bases and and the bigger bases helps. But uh, the big thing is, is probably health, right? Because you don't want somebody trying to have to avoid the, um, the first baseman's foot as, as he, you know, tries to make a play on a, on a bare hand play from the third baseman. Right. So he, he tries to stretch to grab the ball. You want a little bit more surface area to land. Uh, and hopefully that limits the, you know, Eloy Jimenez, Oftentimes, you know, coming up lame after running hard to first base, you know, extending a hamstring or rolling an ankle or something like that. So hopefully the bigger bases help with that. So, Jack, there, you know, there's lots of smart people that think the the pitch clock coming is like one of the best things for the future of the game. Right. Like a lot of people think, you know, you want to increase action and just, you know kind of get rid of like all of that downtime, right? They, they think this is like a good solution. You've seen it um, up close. What do you think about it coming to Major League Baseball? And then do you think they have it right with the like 15 seconds and 20 seconds? Does that seem right to you? Yeah, well, I'm only going to say that I like it if you consider me one of those smart people that you're talking about. Is that fair? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. But Perfect. you know, you know who I'm talking about. There's oh, yeah. Lot, you know, when Theo Epstein <laughs> says it works, I think people listen. So yes, 100%. And Theo Epstein is um, inarguably a smart person. So yeah, I, um, I love it, man. Um, we're seeing 14 seconds with nobody on. We're seeing 19 seconds with runners on. Uh, it'll be 15 seconds with nobody on at the big league level, 20 seconds with runners on. I don't know if that second does anything. The pitch clock was active last year in AAA baseball. The difference between last year and this year is enforcement. And the home plate umpires are being told to enforce it a little bit more stringently. And uh, I, I think it's worked wonders. You know, you you see, I'm not even going to say a pitch clock violation, a game. I, I bet I see a pitch clock violation. If I were to average it out, I mean, we've done 130 games. I've probably seen 
maybe 90 pitch clock violations. So, you know, one little bit more than every other game. And uh, a lot of the time it happens in in the same exact plate appearance because guys are stubborn. And uh, I've talked to players about it. It was so funny. So Kanan Smith and Jigba and Cal Mitchell, two guys that made their major league debut with the Pirates this year, both outfielders. I just had them around the cage and I was talking to both of them. And I just said, pitch clock, yes or no? And Kanan said, yes. And Cal said, no. And it was simultaneous. And that allowed them to just run with it. And after about a five-minute conversation, I think Cal Mitchell was swayed to say, okay, you know what? It's a good thing. I'm just a little bit stubborn. I was stuck in my old ways. Um, I want all the time in the world to pull the David Ortiz, step out of the batter's box, fasten my batting gloves, all that. Um, I, I honestly think it's harder for hitters. I do. And some pitchers, some of the older guard of pitchers, the 30-somethings that I see in minor league baseball are the ones that throw a hissy fit when uh, they get tabbed for an automatic ball. But listen, like if you look at pace or, or it's tempo, it, it's a new thing on baseball savants. Dadcast just added it, and it's pitcher tempo. Uh, like Corbin Burns is going to have to speed himself up. Hirokazu Sawamura is going to have to speed himself up. But aside from that, there are not very many guys that are going to need to speed themselves up. 15 seconds is a lot of time, and uh, you can't argue with the numbers. I think time of game is down about 20 minutes in AAA ball from uh, last year to this year. But what I will say, the the disclaimer, a bad game is still a bad game. So take, uh, take comfort in knowing that you could see a game that features 10 walks and 20 hits, and you can still get out of there in under three hours but it's still going to feel like a miserable game if your team commits four errors. That's very well said, Jack. And let me just follow up with this because when I hear players react to it, I remember Sebi Zavallo being totally against the pitch clock because it breaks routine and it's on their time, the pitcher and the batter's time, and baseball is timeless. I get it. But it's the player's fault that we're in this situation to begin with. I have no other blame to place outside of the umpires who maybe try to enforce Hey, get in the batter's box. Come on, let's go. We got to speed this up. Outside of that, it's on the players. So this is what they get. And that's the stance that I'm on. But when it comes to just when you're watching quality of play and the pace, how significant is this up-tempo game style when you're watching a baseball game play out in front of you? Have you seen pitchers develop different tendencies or hitters feel like they're being rushed like you said? So I, I think pitchers are ready to attack. There's there's a kid in the Braves organization who played in the Futures game, Jared Schuster, a lefty, who is lightning quick, like Burley-esque lightning quick. And it was so fun to watch because what the pitcher can do instead of, and, and I know we talked about it last time I was on with you guys, Mike and James, but um, th- this new school approach to pitching, right? You gear up, you take 30 seconds to get absolutely riled to throw the hardest pitch of your life, and then you're going to do it again in less than a minute. Um, I think what what Jared Schuster and what quick workers are able to do with this pitch clock is have the hitter on their heels, literally. And um, that is so invaluable. Like I think that's what made Mark Burley, in my opinion, a Hall of Famer, but in in nobody else's opinion. Did he get 5% of the vote? I, I'm not sure if he's still on the ballot or not. But um, He is still on the ballot, yes. There we go. That, that's all we need. We just need him to stay on the ballot for a couple more years, and I consider that a, a moral victory. But Mark Burley had hitters on their heels because he was such a quick worker. That's what the pitch clock allows you to do. It allows you, if you are a strike thrower, 
to have hitters on their heels. And all of a sudden, with the snap of a finger, they're down 0-2. Um, you know, I, I've gotten into a rhythm uh, where I like to listen back to, you know, an inning and a half, two innings every morning after I do a game that previous night. And I mean, I've listened to half innings that I've done that are like two and a half minutes. It's utterly incredible. And last year I was listening to innings and I was like, well, um, I don't know if I can get through all this. This is a 12 minute half inning. I've gotten through innings that are three minutes or, or under uh, half innings where, you know, it's a one, two, three inning with a couple of ground outs. An eight pitch inning, a nine pitch inning may take three minutes, four minutes. That is the beauty of this stuff because um, it, it, it allows baseball to get into the rhythm where it is best. And when baseball lacks rhythm, it's a really hard sport to watch. But the reason a lot of people fall in love with baseball is because of the rhythm. It's because of the sights, the sounds, the smells, the ballpark. And it's because you can appreciate the art form that is happening in front of you. So, you know, Jack, 12 minutes in and uh, I'm going to mention shifts for the first time. Um, Let's do it. I guess just like first impression, like I hate it just because I think it's like, you know, it's like a huge strategical change, right? Like it's, you know, it kind of, and maybe this is a little bit off base, but like coaching football, you know, it's like, oh, you, you're not allowed to blitz on third down anymore. Like it's yeah. just, you know, stuff along those lines. I understand that they want to increase action. I guess my thought on this is like the only way to greatly improve offense is to make pitchers worse. And like, I might be off on that, but I just kind of feel like pitchers are so good that like, that's why the three true outcomes kind of became a thing. But how do you feel about shifting the rules and you know what they're going to attempt to do here and whether it can work or not? Yeah. So I like from a surface level, I don't like it. I am of the thinking and I know it's very old school and you could probably, you know, just bury me uh, with numbers um, to, you know, refute what I say. But I just think like if you're a talented enough hitter, hit it somewhere else. Uh, Jordan Alvarez is a much better hitter than Joey Gallo. And that's why Jordan Alvarez has an OPS flirting with a thousand and Joey Gallo, you know, was traded for nothing like a, a reliever prospect to the Dodgers. So, um, that's the big thing that jumps out to me, like hit it somewhere else. Now, having said that, I think that there is a benefit to this. I don't need to see Manny Machado in shallow right half the time he's out there defensively. I just don't. Um, and, you know, I think it will incentivize guys to hit the ball all over the field. Um, the three true outcome thing, I... Um, I almost attribute that to baseball becoming more about explosiveness than anything else. So being in the division with the White Sox, Stephen Kwan is a beautiful, beautiful hitter to watch because he is so graceful and like rhythmic and, and he has a plan of attack whenever he steps up. But we see so many guys that throw 98, 99 and have no idea where it's going. We see so many guys that swing for the heavens three times. And if they miss three times, then they punch out. Baseball is as talented as it's ever been. It's also more explosive than it's ever been. And it's probably less technically gifted and malleable than it's ever been. Um, so hopefully this incentivizes, you know, a little bit more balls in play. And um, a Joey Gallo, like, hey, you've got no excuse to strike out a billion times now because you don't need to hit it over anybody. Just put it in play. And maybe that hard ground ball that you typically hit gets through and you hit about 280. So what you're saying there has me thinking, Jack, and, and now entertain me with this a little bit, because to me, this is the Players Association 
trying to instate this rule. I think this is all MLBPA because the players want to obviously do well in the league and get paid, but also this opportunity, if you're forcing infielders to stay on either side of the bag, two and two, you can't cross over prior to the pitch. That leaves an opportunity for athletic infielders to get jobs again. And it also allows batters at the plate to find holes like you're explaining. Do you think that's that's a part of it? Do you think the Major League Baseball Players Association were the head of this conversation saying this is an opportunity for our players to have more success, to show off their athleticism, to allow more opportunity for players? I am absolutely drinking that Kool-Aid on that conspiracy theory. I'm totally in on that because Nico Horner is going to do so much better in arbitration when he can show X amount of highlight plays, um, even if they're not positioned correctly, right? O'Neill Cruz um, and Oscar Colas, who pulls the ball about 45% of the time right now, Oscar Colas is going to do better in arbitration because he's going to have a higher batting average. He's going to have a higher OPS because he's getting on base more because he's rolling hard ground balls to the right side of the infield. This is beneficial to the players if they choose to adhere to it. Now, I'm sure there are some guys like, I'm sure we're going to watch Philadelphia Phillies games next year and Kyle Schwarber is still going to be swinging for the heavens to the pull side, right? Like he's just going to be putting every ball in the air right side. That's okay. He's already gotten his bag by doing that. Um, But I think for the next generation of guys coming up, they don't need to change their approach that much um, and they can be wildly successful and make a lot more money. So I'm totally in on that, Mike. So Jack and, you know, Mike, I'm curious to get your opinion on this too. Like the way that my mind works and, you know, maybe this is like a negative character flaw for myself, but <laughs> as soon as like rules are implemented, like I try to like think of the ways that these rules are going to be like exploited, you know? Yes. So there's two players on each side, which is fine. Like on the infield, do, do you f- like see any way that, you know, you just like shift the outfielders around then and maybe try to accomplish the same thing? Like maybe you, you know, you, you put the left fielder like up closer in the grass and you basically don't put anybody in right field or something. Like maybe, I don't know. I'm just like curious to see like how teams kind of counteract some of this stuff. Yeah. So I was thinking about that too. I was thinking, okay, what's the loophole here? And Major League Baseball addressed the loophole really effectively, actually, because I was thinking, all right, you've got Jeremy Pena here. Um, Jeremy Pena is one of the best defensive shortstops in the game already as a rookie for the Astros. Why not put Pena at second base, put him on the right side of the infield and swap he and an aging Altuve when a lefty bat is hitting? And Major League Baseball put the Knicks on that. There are two designated guys to stay on each side of second base. So Jeremy Pena will play shortstop. He will be on the left side of second base the entire game. Jose Altuve will be on the right side of second base for the entire game. So you can't have like, a quote-unquote ringer that swaps between first and third or short and second. Outfield, like, think about historically what you've seen from outfielders, right? So with the infield in a shift, the outfield shades. Um, I think that the outfield is going to continue to shade. Maybe they get a little bit more drastic of shades. Um, But if Gallo pokes a ball down the third baseline, like that's a triple if if the outfield is shifting more dramatically than they do. So, um, you know, is, is that a risk that teams are willing to take? I have no idea. They'll probably have somebody in their front office tell them that it is. Uh, but I probably disagree with that. Maybe we'll see more 9-3 putouts. I'm in. You know, <laughs> as you're explaining all of this, I'm thinking about 
your journey as a broadcaster watching minor league baseball over the last several years and how it's changed just in a matter of three seasons. 2019 into 2020, we know what happened to the minor league year in 2020. It was canceled and we saw a lot of the core players and several organizations play at alternate sites and expanded roster and getting opportunity to develop players in a different way for the first time in its history. You fast forward to 2021, and then that offseason, we have the lockout, which has changed things. Minor league baseball has been reduced. You see these rule changes being implemented, and you're talking about how players should be able to hit it where they're not. What's it like with all of this being said for you to cover the game now, knowing that this may be a different type of athlete that we're watching on the field every day? Yeah, that's a great question. Like, I I think that this level of athlete is better than – it's ever been before. You don't see any guys that are scrawny. You just don't. Um, you see guys that are are spending at least an hour a day in the weight room, if not more. Every guy that you think is skinny has this film of muscle over every part of their body. Like it is absolutely incredible that the forearm definition on all these guys, um, the explosiveness that they have. Taking care of your body has never been uh, more accessible in professional sports, probably in life, right? Because you got, hey, yeah, all these fad diets, Peloton. My girlfriend is obsessed with Peloton. Um, I you know, have her account. I don't have the bike, but the, the, even the stretches, they just kick my butt. It's ridiculous. But I mean, these guys, like they can go home uh, and, and wake up the next morning, do a Peloton workout, and then go to the ballpark and, and hop in the team weight room and, and get after it. Um, these guys are so well taken care of. And not only that, physically, um, they have so many resources at their disposal. Like all these guys have have databases. Um, I know the Blue Jays have something called Jays Tube. The Cubs have something called Ivy um, that, you know, will provide them. 90th percentile exit velocity and spin rate for, you know, a 19 year old in low A. Like these guys have access to all the information they could possibly need. So if you say, all right, you got to operate within these boundaries, you know, you can hit the ball uh, to shallow right field now. I think they're going to figure out a way to do it. Um, you know, we, we talk about the science of the swing, the science of, of the pitch, the science of the fastball, the science of the breaking ball all the time. These guys understand it. I mean, you have at least two or three driveline guys in every bullpen in minor league baseball um, with all the resources that everybody has now from the coaching staff at the minor league level to the players. I mean, a lot of these players like have their own information. Um, I know the White Sox are big with Codify. Had Michael Fisher on the Just Baseball show, my my other podcast. Um, quick plug with Arm uh, Layton and Peter Appel. We uh, do couple days uh, or five days a week. Um, but we had Michael Fisher on and I mean, like he is providing information that sometimes the teams don't even give these players. They have so much information. They take such good care of their bodies. I think if you put some guidelines in play, um, they, they will run with it. And I, I think that baseball is going to adjust very, very quickly. There's no I in team, but there is one in indeed. And that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. 
They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So what's the future of the starting rotation? Is it going to be a, a variation of openers and long middle relievers and high-end explosive arms? Mike, I hope they all throw seven innings again. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard, man. Like, I don't know. Uh, I think Tampa has it right right now. Uh, with a healthy McClanahan, that's a guy that's going to go seven. Drew Rasmussen can go seven on any given night. And then after that, it's, it's we'll figure it out. You know, the White Sox, like, they just use Joe Kelly as an opener. But but Davis Martin is the bridge man. The difference between Davis Martin going five innings from innings three, four, five, six, and seven to one, two, three, four, five is beyond me. Um, I think if you're you're groomed as a starting pitcher, you know how to start games. You should start games. And, and Joe Kelly can throw the sixth if they want. But I think you will at least have three legitimate starting pitchers in every rotation. Four and five. We'll see if a team is gifted with five belie- five pitchers that they believe can truly be starting pitchers. They might run five starters. Houston has started eight guys all year long. They've been blessed with wonderful health, even though Verlander's on the IL right now. You know, they, they can run out a guy that can go seven innings each night. But if you don't have that luxury, you got to get creative. And I think that everybody's going to start getting creative. And James has mentioned this in the past. You know, teams are looking at outgetters, right? They just want to make sure that they're getting the 27 outs in the game, no matter how they do it. And what you said, I think, is so important about starting pitchers going through their routine and starting a ball game. And even if you expect them to go two innings, just pull them. Don't screw it up by having Joe Kelly start the first inning and then throw a starter in the second, third, fourth, fifth. Because that's what I'm thinking about Michael Kopech, Jack, is if you're going to limit Michael Kopech at this part of his season, allow him to be the opener and then use a middle relief arm if you have to, if that's the plan. Don't save him as a bullpen piece because he'll be ineffective. Uh, You are spot on. Absolutely spot on. Christian Javier was another example, right? I'm bringing up the Astros all the time right now. I have no idea why I'm doing that, but Javier well, and they're Kope- probably going to win the they're probably going to win the World <laughs> yeah, Series. Yeah, they're probably so. going to win the World Series. But like Kopech and Javier were the two best swing men in baseball last year, right? Where they could have started games. Kopech obviously had the entire offseason to figure out how to start games. Javier obviously had the entire offseason to figure out how to start games again, and they're thriving. You know, Javier a little bit more than Kopech, but. I'm with you, man. Like if Michael Kopech has been starting games for his entire life, I understand why you made that move last year. You had enough starting pitching. But for the love of God, just let Michael Kopech start games, please. And and if it's, you know, if he can only go three or four innings, then do that. I, I don't think we're ever going to get away from the short leash that we have now. I think the short leash is here to stay, except with Patrick Corbin in Washington. I, it's incredible what they're putting that guy through. But yeah, I, I do think that if a guy is brought up as a starting pitcher in the minor leagues, if he makes his way all the way through AAA to the White Sox or any of the other 29 clubs um, as a starting pitcher, 
have him start games. I also saw James typed uh, out getters here. That's actually one of my favorite terms right now because um, I think if we made it sound a little bit more frilly and highbrow, a lot of front offices would like the ground ball guys with low strikeout numbers. So I was thinking out accumulation. This pitcher excels in out accumulation. That seems like the type of guy that gets a shot um, as opposed to high spin, high K rate, high walk rate, right? Well, yeah, and you don't. I mean, you don't even have to call them pitchers anymore. Just out accumulators or out you know, accumulators. How, how many, yeah, you're allowed thirteen out accumulators on your on your major league roster. So I'm here for it. You know, something that's in the in the news is uh, minor league unions, and it's you know I think we always hear you know like when we're going through collective bargaining talk and you know we had to like turn into lawyers right when baseball yeah. Uh, yeah. baseball podcasters talking about all this stuff and I, you know I think it's always kind of you know the MLBPA doesn't care about their future members and this is always mentioned and I've said it myself well it seems like you know MLB is maybe possibly doing the right thing here for once I think so. And um, I've got my LSAT test prep booklet sitting in my um, sitting on my coffee table right now. And I'm not going to lie, like I have not opened it, but that's always kind of been the fallback if, if I felt like I was hitting a standstill in the uh, in the baseball media game. Right. It's like, hey, I've got that LSAT test prep booklet. Might as well bust it out. I'm not going to pretend to be a lawyer right now, but what I, I'm not pretending about is I, I tried to read as much as possible about it because it is a very exciting thing. And that's the sentiment that I got from a lot of these players. So Major League Baseball did do the right thing. If they struck down the idea of a minor league players union um, or the it really it is the MLBPA, the Major League Baseball Players Association, serving as the representative of minor league players as well as major league players. They are two separate facets. Um, if Major League Baseball said no to that, then they would have gone a little bit deeper into a legal battle to have it happen, and it just would have been a black eye on Major League Baseball. The, the gist and the biggest part of my understanding is this. The Major League Baseball Players Union and the Minor League Baseball Players Union will have two separate CBAs. So... The MLB CBA and the minor league CBA will be different. Obviously, the the financials have to be way different because you got Max Scherzer making forty three million a year, and then you've got you know a kid in low A making four hundred bucks a week. They will be different. So a CBA will expire in Major League Baseball. It will have no implications on what happens in Minor League Baseball. But Minor League Baseball, we could see an average pay bump on a per week basis, on a per month basis. We could see yearly salaries at a time that doesn't make any sense in terms of the major league CBA timeline. So it's a good thing. Like minor league baseball players need representation. They all have individual representation with agents and such, but like agents can't do anything until you hit arbitration. Um, They can do something when you're drafted. They can do something probably in international free agency, um, but they they can't do anything for you when you're under team control. So I, I think it's good that these guys are going to have a little bit of say in, in what they make when the number is already ridiculously low. The owners showed the true colors in 2020, and then they reiterated that they're still just awful people in terms of loving the game of baseball because they just own land and it's just property to them. It's so frustrating because I'm worried now, Jack, that as a result of something that should have already been taken care of without a unionization or without any labor dispute, that 
the major league organizations that are affiliated or that sign contracts with affiliated clubs and organizations, it is major league baseball's responsibility to take care of the players at a base level, which is housing and appropriate financial uh, support. That is the absolute minimum that they should be able to provide these players. And it's been a struggle. And like you said, you know, the low way players making as, as little as they are. So as a result of this now, now I, I'm again freaking out that Major League Baseball will justify minimizing the minors even more considering they might have to raise the salary floor for all minor league baseball players. And as a result, it will unfortunately cost jobs because Major League Baseball wants to maintain a budget. Am I on the right page here? Do you foresee something like that happening where as a result of the minor league unionization and what they're asking for in future collective bargaining agreements that maybe it's their own downfall? So that that is, it's loaded and I totally understand where you're coming from. And I think that's the concern in baseball. It's minor league baseball players are going to get greedy to the point that major league baseball is going to say, you know what? Screw it. Like we've already got teams at the complex. Like we'll just put you all at the complex. It doesn't matter. I'm nervous about how this is going to play out. I don't think it'll play out like that. Um, I think that the, the people that are most worried about that are the owners and the presidents and the, you know, director of marketing and, and the director of ticket sales for these minor league baseball teams. Like what happens to the Birmingham Barons, if White Sox players, if, if minor league baseball, hell, if Dodgers minor leaguers say like, no, we're not playing, we need more money, that affects everybody. So like we could have a, a couple of dudes on the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes, you know, being this like miserable, stubborn holdout. And in turn, like the rest of minor league baseball feels like they need to adhere to it. And minor league baseball players hit a labor strike, you're only hurting yourself if you go on a labor strike in minor league baseball because the way to get to major league baseball is by playing games and playing them well. Um, So it's going to be such a tightrope that all these guys are going to walk. And the question is, like, if these guys in Rancho Cucamonga spearhead it um, and minor league baseball feels like they need to, you know, adhere to it, then – what happens to the Birmingham Barons? Like they're missing games because you've got 20 year olds saying, no, we need more money. So, well, well, Jack, that's what I'm saying. Like what we knew before to what we know now, it's Major League Baseball Players Association in the past didn't acknowledge any upcoming minor leaguers as a part of the new CBA. So they didn't even think about them. So now they're thinking about them. That's great. The inclusion is wonderful. However, what you said I thought was important. Major League Baseball organizations may come to realize that, hey, Maybe if we take 120 minor league players and just split them up into three facilities and that's it, then that's it. Then you all have a certain number of minor league players available to operate as like instructs or maybe there's like two leagues instead of multiple levels. Yeah. Like that is something that I'm just worried about. Well, and it's terrifying, man, because like as somebody that is living in Indianapolis working for a minor league baseball team right now, we need minor league baseball in Indianapolis. I need minor league baseball in Indianapolis. I, there could be some serious ripples to this. Um, I don't think it's going to happen because it would take somebody that is morally terrible to to let that happen to minor league baseball because I, I think everybody that has spent even a day in baseball understands how important these minor league organizations are to their towns that they're in, to the cities that they're in. 
you know, not only does it generate a little bit of tourism, but it's something to do for the people of that town. So it's an entertainment business. Why would you limit the number of markets that you can be an entertainer in? I don't know, but I'm not going to put anything past uh, Major League Baseball's front offices. I'm not. Man, I'm usually the conspiracy theorist on the show, Mike. This is uh, <laughs> this is different for me. No, so I want to shift us, uh, you know, towards the White Sox and onto the field. Jack, I'm just curious to see if you've spoken to anybody um, about Project Birmingham and just kind of your overall thoughts on it. You know, I think me and Mike both, regardless of whether it worked or ultimately if, you know, other organizations followed suit, we were interested because the White Sox are finally at the forefront of something. So, you know, we, yeah. we kind of found that part of it interesting. Yeah. Chris Getz was awesome, man. I loved him as a player. He was great. Um, yeah. I, you know, I haven't talked to anybody within the White Sox organization, but I've talked to a lot of people around minor league baseball about it. And, and the overall sentiment is that's weird. I've heard, I've heard stupid before and um, I don't want to say stupid, I will say that I don't like it. And and the overwhelming sentiment is people don't like it. Why would you bring a guy from low A who's hitting well to double A, not place him on the development list and have him get eaten alive by some of the most talented pitchers not in Major League Baseball? I think the Southern League, that that double A league that Birmingham is in, is probably the most talented league in minor league baseball. I think there's more talent... Um, per like arm per bat in that league than there is in the international league or the Pacific coast league or, you know, any of the other double a leagues. So you're asking guys to thrive at the highest level of minor league baseball. What's the best thing for a minor league baseball player. It's hit really well at each level and truly earn a promotion here. Colson Montgomery. He was incredible in a ball. What does he do when he gets to double? Like any way you slice it, he's been terrible for Birmingham. West Coth, right? He was he was pretty good in Canapolis. Any way you slice it, he's been terrible with Birmingham. So it, I don't know. I don't agree with it. I understand what Chris Getz was trying to do here. Like you surround Lions with other Lions, like, you know, almost replicate the alt site. If you have a bunch of really talented baseball players around you, um, you know, chances are you'll get better. But the problem is like when you are not ready to face really good talent and you're facing really good talent and you're getting blown up, that cannot help your confidence at all. Yeah. So, I mean, there's obviously that part of it. I just, I guess I feel like they don't really care, right? They, they tried to, to recreate like an alt site environment with all of their best coaches and rovers and everything at one place where they're like working on stuff you know, right away. And I don't, I don't know if they really care about the outcomes of these games, but like, I understand what you're saying. Like when you, you know, West Cath struggled in low a with strikeouts. So yeah. having him go to double a, um, yeah, like I, I completely understand being skeptical of that. And I mean, like somebody like Colson Montgomery, you know, like he might've like went in the tank anyway, because it's more baseball than he's ever played. But yeah, I mean, it, like some, it is, and it, and I think it was a little bit twofold for the White Sox. Like it was a college heavy, draft class and they got like a lot of those guys to Canapolis like after the complex season ended yeah you know what I mean so like it was kind of like that and the White Sox have never really prioritized winning minor league baseball games either obviously and, and contrary to popular belief these guys can learn from playing winning baseball like if you play winning baseball at the minor league level chances are you will know how to play winning baseball when you get to the major league level um, if you look at Tampa Bay's affiliates 
they're all really good every year. Like, I think all of them won the championship in their league last year. Durham, Montgomery, Bowling Green. I think they were all like, if not winning, contending for a championship in their league. It helps to play winning baseball. And I, I saw a quote from Getz that was something along the lines of, um, at this point, we're not as worried about production as we are development. A lot of mental development comes from really solid production. Having confidence building outings, having confidence building at bats um, will help in turn slow the game down for you. And when you're ready to move to the next level, you are ready to move to the next level. The flip side of what I want to talk about here is you mentioned all the Rovers, all the coordinators being in Birmingham for the rest of the year, focusing on their guys. I understand that like those are all the guys you see impacting the White Sox at the big league level or developing into very solid trade chips at some point. Um, I understand that like pretty much everybody you want to worry about is in Birmingham. But how about the other guys? Like, how do you think that makes the other guys feel like they are fillers, organizational fillers? Um, if they don't have anybody showing up to evaluate talent, to monitor, to quality control that talent. And I, I'll bring up a guy like Davis Martin, who kind of popped up out of nowhere this year, right? Davis Martin, if he was in high A right now, he probably wasn't going to be one of those Project Birmingham guys. Sometimes those guys just pop up. And now it's on those guys to force the White Sox hand by being so good statistically. It, it, and, the, and the coordinators can't measure that because they're all in Birmingham already. I just see too many flaws here for this to be a success. Again, I understand the sentiment. I understand why they wanted to do it. I just think in execution, it makes no sense. See, Jack, you're, you're making me think that minor league baseball and the owners in major league baseball are going to justify reducing more minor league teams because of the stuff that you're talking about. Is yeah. We're seeing the White Sox value their best prospects and just pull them together and not necessarily ignore everybody else, but clearly not getting as much uh, look. I know the minor league season and other levels are done at this point, but it's something to think about. Jack, this has been awesome. I love talking baseball with you, and it's always a joy to have you on the Future Sox podcast. The White Sox are in it still. We're yeah. you know halfway through September, and that's been the story of the season. What are your thoughts on the White Sox? Just let them fly. I want to hear it. <laughs> well, um, I, I love being on this with you guys. It's, it's such a fun time. Uh, Sunday morning, the White Sox are a game and a half back in Cleveland, man, and they're two games ahead of Minnesota. It really feels like none of these three teams actually want to play postseason baseball. Like none of them want to win the American League Central, but somebody's going to end up winning the American League Central. I don't know. Like my White Sox thoughts have just been so scattered. Like I have, I have drove the dagger into the sternum of the White Sox several times and then broken out the defibrillator several times too. So like they are dead and then alive two days later and then dead again two days later and then alive four days later. Um, I'm not going to give you a dead or alive right now, but winning eight of their last 10 and four in a row feels really good, even if it is a, a drubbing of the Oakland A's. So, um, I don't know, like <laughs> Miguel Cairo, he, he ignited some sort of fire within them. Uh, hell yeah. Hell yeah, he did. Uh, ah, God, it's tough. I honestly think that the White Sox win the American League Central. Do they deserve it? Absolutely the hell not. They don't, but they might do it anyways. Yeah, I mean it's I mean it just has the feel of like 
and I don't know what they're going to do here like the rest of the week. But, you know, I think I've said it on here to Mike. Like it had the Tony La Russa, like it just kind of had the feel of Vecna wreaking havoc on a small <laughs> uh, Midwestern town. You know, it's just like, but then yeah. he's gone. And we've said it all year, right? Like, look, it's, it wasn't all his fault, but I was like, well, let's try. Like, let's see if there's like a dead cat bounce here, right? And then like, you know, it's like, oh, this is pointless so late. And then they start winning like we've, you know, like we've kind of thought might happen one of the guys just before we let you go that's like come up and exceeded even our expectations who we've always you know kind of been a fan of here is Romy Gonzalez I mean he completely changed his profile during that 2020 season and last year he really took off he was hurt a ton this year but I thought he was you know a candidate to start with the big league team this year he's come up he's been ridiculous in like 20 games with the White Sox had you had you ever seen Romy Gonzalez yeah, I had seen Romy in triple a little bit earlier this year in the in the 33 games he played with uh, with Charlotte. And, you know, like, he was good. I, I like Romy, and I, I loved Romy when he was at Miami, too. I Big college baseball guy during that time span, being in college as well uh, at the time and being in, uh, you know, these, these summer leagues. Like, I was out on the Cape in 2018. He was out on the Cape in 2017. Romy, I think, is a very talented athlete, and I think that he's a very good athlete. And, and this is a guy, I'm with you, man. Like, if they didn't sign Josh Harrison ahead of this year, I thought Romy was going to be the opening day second baseman, and, and I would have been okay with that. And I think the White Sox would be okay with going into next year or the year after with Romy Gonzalez holding down at least a platoon spot in, in the White Sox lineup. I, I think that he's earned that in 16 games. I think he showed that he can hang with the big boys. And I know that the schedule has been a little light over the last 16, but listen, if you can play against the Oakland A's, chances are you can have a good game against, you know, Cleveland or Minnesota as well. Jack, this is awesome. Really appreciate your time. Go to justbaseball.com If you want more Jack McMullen and his crew, what do you have that we can look forward to of fans of Jack McMullen now? What are you working on? <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate that. You guys don't have to be fans of me. Listen, I, I, all I ask for is another invite to this pod like six months down the road, please. Um, but no, it's uh, it'll be good, man. We're doing the Just Baseball show through the offseason. Um, so, you know, keeping up to date on the free agent carousel and the, and the trade carousel. And if the winter meetings mean anything anymore, um, then then we'll be on that. So the Just Baseball show, JustBaseball.com. Check out that. We got still about two and a half more weeks of, of the AAA season. So if you find yourself tuned into any Indianapolis Indians games, we got that going on, and uh, I'll be around uh, mid-major college basketball a good bit to do some work with Ball State. So if you're ever interested in Mac hoops, and if you're a college basketball degenerate that wants to know how the Amani Bates saga is going at Eastern Michigan, uh, I'm your guy to go find. I know there's a niche in here. I mean, we cover minor league baseball for the Chicago White Sox. Fans of this podcast, I'm sure, like Eastern Michigan, are in, interested in what you have to say about <laughs> also Ball State. What about the football team? No chirp, chirp football love here. Uh, chirp, chirp. Dropped a uh, lost by about <laughs> fifty at Neyland, um to, to Tennessee oh, okay. week one, and then dropped a tight one to Western Michigan uh, yesterday. So in week two, so. Um, you know, the big one is we go to Georgia Southern at the end of September. Georgia Southern just took town Nebraska last night. So we're oh. going to find out if Georgia Southern yeah. is good or Scott Frost is terrible. <laughs> Gotta love it. Jack McMullen, he's the goods. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at Jack underscore McMullen. It's always a pleasure to talk to Jack. 
James, what a, what a show. What a day. What a life that we live. The White Sox are still alive. The Arizona Fall League is coming up soon. And we're going to be able to cover that on futuresox.com. Thanks, as always, for your contributions to the podcast, James, and to the site. Go to SoxMachine.com for everything that you need. Email us if you'd like, futuresocks at gmail.com. Send us questions. We'll respond to you on the podcast here. My name is Mike Rankin. For James Fox and Jack McMullen, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. You get it every Tuesday. Thanks to the Blue Wire Network. We'll talk to you all next week.